We have almost 20 different kinds of scientists working in this national park, and that's just the people working in the park. This park has the most researchers of any national park in the country, and so there is so much science being done in this park. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So in Learning Unboxed today, we are going back to the National Park Service. Um, One of our favorite topics for those of you that are regular listeners on this program, anything that has to do with getting more folks outside and learning and protecting our environment, we are all about that. So we are very excited today to welcome to the program um, Julianne Galunz from the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So Julianne, welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. So a little bit of background for our listeners. Julianne has been a park ranger since 2011, having worked in five different national parks throughout the United States and has spent the last seven years um, working in education in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And she is going to spend some time with us today talking about Parks in the Classroom, which is their signature program. It's also um, a program that can be found and accessed at a number of different locations around the, the U.S. So Julianne, let's start. Uh, for folks who don't know where the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is located and sort of the national parks um, within the U.S. structure in generally. So tell us about Great Smoky Mountains. Absolutely. So Great Smoky Mountains National Park is a southeastern park uh, that is split between two states, uh, Tennessee and North Carolina, and it's along the southern Appalachian Mountains. So we are pretty famous for our biodiversity. That's the number one thing that scientists study in our national park. We have documented over 20,000 different species, um, and scientists actually estimate that there are about 100,000 species to be found in this national park. But of course, the species yet to be found are very small, and um, they require very uh, specialized uh, scientists in order to identify them. So we've identified a lot of the plants, the fungus, of course, the mammals and birds, um, but we're still Uh, We're still kind of pioneering research uh, in the smaller sort of fields, which is really exciting because we're finding species that are brand new to science every single year. Uh, We're also famous for our scenic vistas. We have uh, a road that goes uh, directly up and over the mountain through the park and some of the most beautiful scenic vistas uh, anywhere in the country um, go right uh, through this national park. And then our last thing that we are famous for is our cultural history. We have over 10,000 years of human history here in this national park. And more history is happening every single day because we are the busiest national park in the country. We receive over 12 million visitors every single year. Uh, But some of the really iconic components of our cultural history is the history of the mountain people or the mountain settlers, where they built a lot of historic log cabins that were built usually in about the late late 1700s, but most of them were in the early 1800s, and they're still representative in this park today. Yeah, and it's a beautiful park. I I have been to not every U.S. national park, but close to it. I'm 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 
slowly over the years ticking them off. And the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is is an all-time favorite. And one of the other things that's wonderful about it is it's big. You get lots of visitors there, but the visitors can spread out. And there's so many different things to see, places to go within the park. So it's a great place. We encourage uh, folks folks to go. One of the, the great things about the work that you've been doing there is, you know, the number of students that you have been able to directly impact. You know, I think you said 18 to 20,000 students on a typical year, I would imagine, um, have exposure uh, to the program, in particular, the Parks as a Classroom program. So share with us a little bit about what's the gist of that program and what does it look like specifically at um, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park? Yeah, so we serve uh, our gateway communities um, on both sides of the park, and we serve rural communities as well as urban communities. One of our missions is to get uh, urban students, urban youth into the national park. And what that looks like is the students will come on a field trip, uh, a day field Mm -hmm. trip into the national park, and the national park becomes their classroom. Uh, We have kids that are coming into the park that have grown up right next to it and had no idea that there is a national park uh, right next door. And we also have kids that really have not spent much time outside at all. I've even had students that have heard a stream running and have asked, what, what's, what's that sound? They had never heard running water <laughs> in a natural space before. So exactly. we try to have um, place-based, curriculum-based learning experiences in an outdoor environment uh, using the Smokies as a living laboratory. And there, again, you know, there's just, there's nothing better than being able to actually go and do your learning out in the environment. And that, that hands-on applied component, especially uh, to your point, for students who've never seen some of those things. And it is really quite wonderful. We, we do a, a fair number of, of outdoor education programs at the Past Innovation Lab as well. And I'm always struck, right, by the look of wonder and just, um, you know, the kids can be so mesmerized because so outside their traditional uh, experiences. So does does the program, so so let's say I'm a teacher in one of your, your gateway community schools. We're going to have a field trip. We're coming. So what does the prep look like for me? So how, as an educator, do I make sure that my students are ready to take advantage of the content that's going to be delivered when we get there. Let's start with that. And then I want to roll up our sleeves and actually talk about the program itself um, in terms of the way that it works. Yeah. So luckily, we've been working with a lot of the same teachers for, in some cases, decades. And so they know the ropes. Uh, But typically, what we have is a pre-site activity, the on-site activity, and then a post-site activity, because that's really what helps drive home not just the experience, but what the teachers are looking for, which is, of course, the standards. So uh, we have packets that have been sent to the teachers over the years. Um, And of course, with the more recent development, now we have a lot of videos, and those videos can be used to uh, really get the students um, understanding the vocabulary and getting prepared for what they're going to experience while they're here so that there's a little bit less of an intro when they get here, and we can really maximize their time in the park and get them out hiking, get them in the stream, get them in the dirt, get them a little bit dirty and, and really get that hands-on learning uh, right up, really maximize our time. Because some of these kids, they're coming from Knoxville or Asheville, and that's a pretty long bus ride. And so we want to make sure that they are in the woods as much time as possible. So that pre-site stuff is pretty important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and how long do most of the school groups stay in the park? Do they come for a day? They come for an overnight? They come for several? What does it look like? Or is it is it varied? 
It uh, typically uh, is about a three to four hour program in the park. So we do not have a residential learning experience uh, with the park service, but we have a wonderful partner in the park uh, called uh, the Institute at Tremont that does have a residential experience. And they gear a little bit more towards the the out of town students and schools. So they're able to, to provide a different experience, a very immersive experience, which is absolutely wonderful, but they do have a slightly different audience and aren't catering as much to the local communities. Perfect. Perfect. So then let's talk about the big giant elephant in the room for all of us over the last nine or 10 months has been this global pandemic um, and the impacts that the pandemic has had both on you know our national parks because there there was an impact or is still I assume an impact as it relates to sort of what's going on um, with what you're able to do or not to do. But then there's also that sort of transition or inflection point that that provided an intriguing opportunity because, you know, my understanding is that you've taken a lot of what you would have done as parks as a classroom and now you've you've transitioned some of it to be online. So let's talk a little bit about what your process has been, what's available and now who gets access to it because one of the big giant equalizing components is we've been talking with with uh, parks all over the world and I, one of the common themes is that all of a sudden, you know, we're no longer limited to visitors who are just coming physically to the park, which is wonderful and we want everybody to do that. It is not the same by any stretch of the imagination when you can't do that, but that suddenly we are finding audience we've never had before. So are you experiencing some of those same sort of phenomenons? Well, our process uh, was a little bit bumpy to start off with because uh, we, we'd actually been pushed into distance learning sort of hesitantly um, leading up to the pandemic. And we, all, we always resisted it because we had a bigger demand of these in-person programs than we could provide. And so we thought, well, we can't even meet the demand of the local community. How on earth like, should we be spending resources on this distance learning? Well, then the pandemic hit and it was just like, you have no choice. You have to do distance learning. <laughs> and so all of us who had been resisting this, this digital transition are all of a sudden you know, forced to become videographers and cinematographers. And so we have an amazing uh, partnership with uh, the uh, Institute at Tremont, uh, Great Smoky Mountains Association, as well as the Friends of the Smokies and Discover Life in America here in the Smokies. Because we are a fee-free park, uh, it means that we really can't function without our partners. And so together, the park and all these partners created um, a digital platform called Smoke Ease at Home. And that's, um, that's Smokies with three E's.org. And what it was, was a whole bunch of uh, partners and park rangers who were uh, pretty much at stay-at-home orders. Uh, some of them, of course, which lived in the national park uh, that all of a sudden developed uh, content to be able to reach all the students that were uh, that were basically stuck at home, and uh, a lot of that content led towards getting students to go and investigate in their their own backyard, right, right, just a little grassy patch uh, for mm-hmm. those who were still able to go to school if they had even just a little spot in uh, in their schoolyard, and so we were able to exactly start reaching some of those uh, more distant audiences. In fact, I ended up teaching a couple uh, Harvard classes, which was a little unique. I'd, I'd never been able to work much with college students outside of the University of Knoxville and, or sorry, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Mm-hmm. So we, we started seeing very different audiences and we had to get really creative, especially when it came to tiny kids. 
Our niche market, uh, especially on the Tennessee side education branch, uh, has really been geared towards younger kids. Uh, We probably get the majority of our students between kindergarten and fifth grade. And uh, any parent out there probably knows that um, the younger the kid is, the less likely they are to sit still for very long. And so a lot of our (laughs) engaging uh, digital programs had to involve movement or art or investigations. We couldn't just play a video for those kids. We felt that that was a little bit more geared towards the older Mm -hmm. uh, middle school, high school, and even college level students. So we also learned some of the benefits in the sheer volume of students that we were able to reach. As you mentioned, it's certainly not comparable. Mm -hmm. An an in-park experience is a memorable, very uh, transformative experience for students. Um, I often like to ask adults, uh, do you ever remember the best lecture that you were ever given? And most of them are like, "Eh, no. (laughs) Why would I remember that? (laughs) And most adults remember at least one field trip, if not all of them. So uh, it, it has been a little bit, it's been different, but um, because we don't have to wait for a bus and only work with one school that entire day, I can reach three or four classes in one day um, from different schools. So we're actually, in some cases, able to get 180 students in one day, which would never be possible with an in-person field trip. So there are some benefits, but there's obviously the drop person field trips, um, I find far more meaningful. Oh, sure. And I, and I don't think anybody would disagree with that, you know, but the flip side of it. So where, I mean, I assume that the students or the classrooms that are coming in digitally are a lot of your local schools because they want to keep the relationship. They're familiar with it. But are you starting to see requests coming from greater geographic distances who would have never tapped into, or is that just emerging still? It's still emerging. We have seen some, uh, mainly because we've we've gotten those requests all along. Yeah. And uh, we, most of the time, were unable to meet those requests because we already sure. had our commitments of our local communities. And so now when those requests come in, we're like, well, now we have this opportunity for you that's digital and absolutely we can serve you. So in that sense, we are definitely able to serve that larger geographic audience. Yeah. And so the the sort of flip piece of this is, you know, we're all assuming that hopefully sooner rather than later, right, we can get back to doing outdoor, in-person, really, really robust programming with, with lots of kids running around and being explorers. But when that happens, does the does the park have a sense yet of the balance between the two? Um, or is there the expectation that the digital learning component will sort of phase away because we no longer need it in the pandemic? Or is it something that as an organization and as an institution, you're, you're going to try to find a way to keep the balance of both? And how would you do that? What would that look like to you? I think we are moving forward always going to be able to offer these uh, digital virtual programs. Uh, We didn't have them set up before and we didn't have an incentive to because we were so busy with the kids that were right in front of us. But after months in a pandemic, we have developed these programs and we've also made some of them available without needing a physical park ranger to be in front of a screen with a video camera. Some of them are on uh, smokies.org and are available to 
to teachers and students at any time. So they don't even need to schedule anything with us. Um, There's definitely that opportunity there. But I don't think that moving forward that it's just going to go back to the way things were. I think that we're always going to have some sort of virtual uh, component just because we have the skills and the resources now to do that. And we didn't before. Right, right. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the the questions or the concerns that you're seeing from students. You know, interestingly enough, even before the pandemic, you know, there's a you know a young woman named Greta out in the world um, who who opened students' eyes to the bigger issues of climate change and the environment, right? Um, and it was somebody that many students could identify. She's young. She, she sort of looks and feels like me. And so even before the pandemic, a lot of that was, was, was from a social media standpoint and um, from a media and marketing standpoint in general, might have had a little bit of a different sort of space in the thinking of the students that you're engaging with. And so um, one of the questions my staff was like, hey, ask her this, um, was really around, are you seeing younger students asking different sets of questions? And I mean, you've been doing this for a number of years now in a variety of different parks. So over time, are you seeing the kids' interest in the environment, whether it be climate change or or the Beatles or whatever, right? You know, um, locally, are you are they asking you a different kind or sorts of questions? So I will say that uh, the climate change curriculum only was implemented just a little bit over a year ago in the state of Tennessee. So the younger grades, even in high school, it's just starting to emerge. Um, and when I say that, I, I, it's it's pretty minimal. I, I am in I am in Tennessee and uh, most of the surrounding counties are pretty rural and uh, socioeconomically depressed. So that, that might give you an indication of how pressing that issue is for that demographic. Uh, however, I will say that in the college students that I work with, as well as um, some of the, the Knoxville high school students. So when you get into an, an urban environment, I get a different feel there. Uh, and they are incredibly active. I'm getting, uh, I'm seeing leadership, especially at the college level that I did not see even just a few years ago. I got asked to do a climate panel at the University of Tennessee. And that's something that the students generated themselves. And now they've been doing mm-hmm. it for three years now. So it is uh, getting to be more active and I'm getting a little bit more of a sort of what I got growing up because of course I was 18 and I was, you know, charging forward, like I got to save the planet. (laughs) And I can't say I met too many kids uh, until recently that were uh, a little bit more like that. And that's just because of where we live. You know, I I grew up in the Mm -hmm. Midwest in Minnesota and here we're just, uh, you know, we, we, I like to call it a little bit uh, smoky, smoky slow. We're, we're a little slow to change. And we're also just, we just take life a little bit slower and we try not to worry about things as much. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, yeah. that's sort of the general feel in this region. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting, you know, over time. As, you know, again, you know, to your point, the curriculum is relatively new in the state of Tennessee. Uh, other places they've been doing or utilizing a climate change curriculum for, for you know, a longer period of time. But as you sort of think about that component and global pandemic and, you know, a, a number of other stressors, whether they be socioeconomic, they be environmental, they, they be a whole host of, of, of components, I assume... That you know, as 
as you in the park and, and the team that, that works with you are thinking about programming of the future, what are some of the changes that you, you're anticipating or your or expectations or maybe even strategic direction that you're thinking about that you know you, you can see your programming shifting um, over time just because of the journey and the path that everybody has been on together? This is actually a meeting that's currently planned, uh, which is a strategic planning meeting because as of right now, we have more audiences that we can than we have the capability to serve. Because not only is our park uh, in high demand for visitation, but so is the education team. Uh, we have a lot of groups that want to utilize um, the park in an educational classroom way. And we just can't meet every single demand. There's only six of us. So trying to serve that that level of audience, it's just not it's not feasible. So I don't necessarily know what audiences we're going to prioritize in the future. The direction that we have been moving is to really focus on Title I schools, uh, urban schools, as well as schools that are really closely located right next to the park. Because um, a lot of the children that grow up in this area, they eventually become leaders in this area. And so getting them involved in the national park, which is, of course, the driver of the economy in this area, is incredibly important. So I don't know if that means that we're going to keep reaching out uh, to further distances and people who are located uh, in maybe on the western side of the country or not. but. We just know that we we have a, a capacity. We just don't know which audiences we're going to prioritize just yet. Right, and that makes sense. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a lot in motion, and there's also so much unknown about what the world will truly look like and how it will function on the flip side of what everybody's experiencing. And so it's good to be having those converse, conversations now. And so we'll, uh, we'll all be watching sort of to see where you land. I'll be curious to sort of see how that all sorts itself out. So I'm curious too. Um, we're, we're a collaborative <laughs> bunch. And so we're, we're all going to side decide together. So we'll see. Exactly. That's great. Well, I always like to sort of close our conversation with recognizing that, you know, we do have listeners from all over the world and we have a lot of education folks, but we also have a fair number of community and industry folks that listen to the program as well. And one of the questions that we often get um, as the follow-up is, hey, that sounds really awesome. How could I participate or how can I get access to that? And we will, of course, post the resources, um, you know, to the website with your program. But, you know, the the obvious one, obvious is, well, you go to our website and you can download our programs. But as folks are sort of thinking about the how I could engage at, you know, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, what would, what would your recommendation be to them? Or if you're a teacher, you know, in Nebraska or in Arizona or, or New Mexico or wherever saying, hey, how, how could I best utilize something that's happening there uh, to help my students locally? What, what would your suggestions be? Absolutely. So uh, what's awesome right now in our current climate is that we are available to schedule virtual programs anywhere, almost anytime. Uh, so emailing us is a pretty easy thing to do. That's uh, grsm underscore education at nps.gov. 
and we'll get those teachers uh, and their classes scheduled for a virtual program. Uh, if they don't have the ability, I know that uh, connectivity is an issue for a lot of students that are working from home and they have to only do homework or uh, download lessons when they're at a library parking lot. That is where I would recommend them to go to smokees.org because that's available anytime and you do not have to have a pre-scheduled uh, visit with a ranger. We also have a wealth of information on our website. I know that uh, websites can be a bit overwhelming, but we've got 20,000 pages uh, of science because we have almost 20 different kinds of scientists working in this national park. And that's just the people working in the park. This park has the most researchers of any national park in the country. And so there is so much science being done in this park. And there's actually a huge database. Uh, so for high school students or college students that are interested in looking at some of the scientific papers that have come out of this park, there's this huge, huge database just full of resources for people who might want to investigate those. Now, scientific papers are for a specific demographic, I would argue, but um, there is a lot of really great stuff that scientists are producing out of this park. So that's what I would say is to just reach out and we are happy to get uh get in touch with those teachers all across the country because we want to reach as many students as possible. There are many kids that, of course, can't make it to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and I hope that they can one day, but uh, maybe wait until it's a slightly better, safer time to travel, I would say. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, Julian, thank you so much for um, taking time out of your day uh, to sort of share what's happening in the park um, with all of us. And for our listeners, I encourage you definitely to hop on the website, see what's going on in the park. And when it is safe, I, I echo Julian's um, you know, uh, statement, please come, come see it. It's an amazing place. You know, the, the national parks here in the U.S., as well as, um, you know, national or government-based parks in other parts of the world, they are our opportunity to get out of what we know on our normal every day and to go see what the world has to offer. So um, please do so. And thank you so much, Julian, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.